brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to the wonderful Bonnie Garmus. Hi, Izzy. Hi. So nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Did I say your surname correctly? Yes, you did. Good, 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 good. <laughs> uh, so Bonnie's first novel, Lessons in Chemistry, was released earlier this month. It's the story of Elizabeth Zott, a scientist in the 1960s who finds herself hosting a cookery programme. It's so funny. It's so instantly captivating. Um, and I'd say it's got a timeless heroine at its centre because I was so immediately drawn to Elizabeth. When we meet her at the beginning of the book, she's a single mum to her daughter Mad, who's five. Um, But we quite quickly find out that she's got this career in science that's been ruined by sexism. She's the spine of the whole thing to me. And I know that she was initially a minor character in a book that you were writing. So how did you know that you had to tell her story? Well, she insisted that I tell her story. I had shelved that other book. It just wasn't going where I wanted it to go. And I'd come home from work one day, and I was in a terrible mood because I'd been sitting in a meeting, and the meeting was full of, it was all men, actually. And I had presented my campaign ideas, and, you know, there was a little bit of conversation and blah, blah, blah. But no one really said anything. They never addressed what I said. And then about five minutes later, a man in the room ended up presenting my ideas as if they were his and saying, what do you guys think? And I was like, oh, that's incredible. I love everything. So I was so mad. And I came home, and I really had a lot on my plate that day, and I needed to work. But instead, I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry because I swear to you, Elizabeth Zott was sitting there, and she goes, you think you've had a bad day? Well, get a load of this. So that was the first time you... And how long ago was that? It was about seven years ago. And you were working in advertising then? Yeah. Wow. And did you know anything about how she looked? Or was it literally just that that kind of... Her voice is so... From the beginning, it's like so pure. She doesn't take any nonsense. (laughs) She says what she thinks, almost in a pathological... Yeah. It's so brilliant. Did you picture her at all? Or was it just that insistent voice? I wasn't really sure what she looked like. And to be honest, I had no physical description of her in the book until my editors begged me to put one in. (laughs) Yeah, but there isn't that much, is there? I know at one point it says she's got a narrow waist when Mm -hmm. she's got her apron. That was the first time I hadn't really thought. I know she's very beautiful as well, Mm -hmm. but not that she would care. She doesn't care, yeah. She's the kind of person who doesn't even have a mirror, I imagine. Like, there's never anything about her getting her hair cut. Or (laughs) at one point her daughter says that when she sees her mother in lots of different roles... I really loved this bit. And she says she sees her with a a compact, like a powder Mm -hmm. compact. But you hardly get anything about her appearance or that she cares for her appearance. One of the reasons I did it like that was because I wanted everyone to envision their very own Elizabeth Zott. Because I think there's a little part of her in so many of us, in very many women. (laughs) And I thought it would be better for women to see themselves or someone they could imagine in that role. Yeah. It's going to be already a TV series. Yes, it's with, been, yeah. With, this is really exciting. It's, uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it's your first book. Yeah. And also it's um, in 35 territories. Now it's 37. 
Wow. I know. So since that was printed, it's like yeah. maybe even by the time this comes out, it's going to be more. <laughs> so what this do you enjoy this stage of it? Because I know you've worked in lots of different mm-hmm. industries really, haven't yeah. you? Kind of mm-hmm. um, technology, education, yeah. advertising. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you able to kind of put a different hat on for this stage of it and go, this is the publication stage. It's kind of no longer the creative stage. Well, you know, for me, writing the book, that's the whole creative part at least for me. And then you move into publication and everybody else comes on board. And that's a hard transition, I think, for a writer because it's like, this is my child. (laughs) And then you sort of give it to other people to raise. You feel really vulnerable, don't you, when you first... Well, I'm, I'm, this is going to sound weird. I don't usually participate in writing groups or anything like that. But when I moved to London, I joined a writing group here at Curtis Brown. And it was just fabulous because I was with other writers. And you know what other writers are like. They're really depressed, you know, facing rejection all the time. <laughs> you know, those are my kind of people. And so it was really great for me to get to know people like that. And even those people probably read less than a thousand words of this book. And yet I just loved knowing that we were all in this together. And it always draws me to writers. We're all in this together and it sucks most yeah. of the time. <laughs> Doesn't it can be so lonely, yeah. can't it? It yeah. really can. Yeah. I love the humor in it. It's it's got so many wonderful jokes in it that are just so funny. I was laughing out loud. I read part of it on a plane and I was (laughs) laughing out loud. And I've been doing comedy for about 20 years now. And so it actually takes a lot to make me laugh out loud. I'm kind of really like old, (laughs) wizened about just like... That is not funny. (laughs) The same way. Yeah, but honestly, it's so warm and it's so filmic. When you were writing it, did you did you kind of think, I'm going to swoop in and I'm going to really picture Harriet's house, for example, the neighbour and her relationship with her husband? You know, no, I, I'm going to sound really disorganised here, but I'm the kind of writer who just pretty much shoots from the hip. I don't write from an outline. And in my career, that was a big problem for the people I worked with because invariably they'd say, yeah, before you start on this, could we get an outline? And I go, oh, wrong writer. Um, so you mean like when you were working in advertising and yeah, stuff? And when you were yeah. doing, because you did lots of different types of writing as well. Yeah, I've done speech writing yeah. a lot. And people would say, you know, it's a 20-minute speech. Could I see an outline? Sure. Not a chance. <laughs> Yeah, so same with the book. I knew how the book was going to start because I wrote it that day, but I wasn't sure what was going to actually occur. I had a pretty good idea of how I wanted to end, but that was it. The rest was this desert that had not been explored. And so I had to go in and figure that out. And it was, you know, very confusing a lot of times and irritating other times, but it was also just always the place I wanted to go and hang out. So you kind of knew what you wanted to happen at the end. Did you know that it would be as kind of jagged a journey for her, I suppose? (laughs) Um, I knew that she needed to face some issues at work and I just couldn't decide how many I should put in. (laughs) I mean, you know, I think all of us struggle at work with, you know, usually there are people problems, but we struggle wanting to get ahead and we struggle with, you know, relationships and we struggle with our clients. And it's It was really something I wanted to explore because I think it's so universal that you want to have this job that you love. And she actually had a job that she loved, but she was forced to give it up. And then she had to take a job that she had no intention of doing. 
and talking to an audience which she felt she was not part of. She was apart from these average housewives. Well, now, no, now you're one of them. And I think I loved that tension that that created. A woman taking a job most people would kill for and not wanting it. I love it. I love (laughs) the fact she doesn't care about the fame. If anything, it's a nuisance. She... The relationship with Walter is so lovely, the guy who initially <laughs> hires her in the TV station. I don't want to give too much away, but I I just love the dynamic between the two of them because he's stuck in a job that he doesn't like, although he's a man and has definitely had it easier than her. He still is kind of maligned by his management and you can see that he really wants to be someone who he can't be at work. And she just kind of comes in with her hands on her hips and goes, well, this is what I'm doing, so... <laughs> I I really loved writing Walter. I love the fact that here was a man who, this woman is ruining his life, but he has so much respect for her at the same time. And I love just watching him try to deal with that, you know, always trying to say, well, look, you know, we don't always get to choose what we do at work. And she's like, why? (laughs) Yeah. But in some ways, she's quite childlike, not childish, but the kind of questions that she asks. I sometimes think that the questions kids ask, like my daughter who's seven, will ask questions that I think, actually, that's quite a good question. It's just that as adults, we get used to going, oh, we don't ask that. Or, well, that's just the way things are. Whereas actually, Elizabeth does ask quite childlike questions at times, doesn't she? And have quite a childlike response to things. Well, my goal with that was that, you know, she had a terrible childhood And she ended up raising herself almost in the library. And I think that if you're that far apart from society, if you really aren't raised in a school environment, you're going to be very different from the other kids. And that was the other thing I I loved about her was that she's self-educated. And I really respected that about her. But she still had this hurt inside her. She didn't want her child to be the misfit that she was. Yeah. And so she thinks, I'll send her to school because that's where you get socialized. And of course, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love, the, I love um, the way she sends it to school. I don't want to give it away, but it's just really Elizabeth. It's actually given me loads of ideas, <laughs> loads of things. I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, okay, well, we've asked you to bring some objects today, like we always do. And I thought we might start with something that changed you, mm-hmm. which is a wetsuit. A wetsuit, yes. I've been a swimmer for a long time. I started doing a little bit of distance around age five, believe it or not. Not great distances. My dad was a great swimmer. But we always swam in a very cold lake in California called Lake Tahoe. And it was not fun. I mean, it was beautiful, but it was very cold year-round. And still, I did a major amount of swimming, I think, growing up. And I eventually started only swimming in lakes and rivers and occasionally the ocean because I was a pool swimmer for a long time. And there are flip turns, there's chlorine, you have to share a lane with somebody, someone's doing the butterfly, (laughs) you know. Well, you don't get that out on a lake. There are no people doing the butterfly out on the lake. So I really enjoyed it. But there was always this problem with being cold. And one year, I started doing a few triathlons. And um, there was one where they said, well, you absolutely have to have a wetsuit. And I went, wetsuit? (laughs) 
So I went out and I bought one in the middle of summer and never do that because they're very hard to get on and you're sweating to death. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You you know, it's just like, oh, it can't be serious. But then I got in the water and it was just this revelation to me that I could be warm and buoyant and I could swim further. I thought, this is like cheating. And I love my wetsuits so much (laughs) that they were just life-changing for me. And you hadn't, no one had suggested getting one before that? No, in fact, you know, it was because we were going to be swimming in what they considered a cold lake, which was not as cold as Lake Tahoe. I could have done it without a wetsuit, but I got that wetsuit and I went, oh my God. And I was so excited by it that my father at that time, he was about 75, and I got him a wetsuit. And he went, when did they invent these? (laughs) (laughs) So you don't ever crave that cold when you first get in. Because I really remember that feeling of jump. I've only done it a few times. In the Isle of Man once, I jumped into like the freezing sea. (laughs) And we met this woman of about 75. And she said she went swimming every day, Mm -hmm. even Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. And that she loved that feeling of going in and it being so cold. She said you can kind of feel it in your bones. And when you've got the wetsuit on, do you ever miss? Is it a kind of buzz to feel that cold? Well, here's the weird thing is that, and this is all because of living in the UK, I used to wear my wetsuit only in the winter, but now I wear my wetsuit only in the summer because I swim much longer distances in the summer. It's a safety device. And also, if you're in a triathlon and you get kicked, a wetsuit is really helpful. It's a little bit of padding. But in the winter now, because of the UK, (laughs) uh, everybody here goes in without a wetsuit. So now I do. And I love it. I've become really addicted to cold water swimming. I don't stay in, you know, I don't go for a half an hour, but I can stay in for 20 minutes. You come out and you feel like you're alive in a way that, I don't know, I'm very addicted to it. And I have recently addicted my husband to it. And he does not like to swim. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to your next object. This is fantastic. It's something that appears in your book, and you've chosen a number two pencil. Yes, number two pencil. I I think it's sometimes called an HB pencil, which I finally found out means hard and black. Oh, I never knew that. I didn't know it either. I just, I finally looked it up. And yeah, I use a pencil in the book. Elizabeth specifically uses this pencil. It's For her, it's both a weapon, but it's also a touchstone. And in the book, she continually, she wears it in her hair. She puts her hair up very casually in a bun, and she sticks her pencil through it. And what I wanted to do with that, in the book, she's constantly reaching back and touching it. And I think for her, it's a reminder of, you're going through a tough thing, you'll get through it. The thing I also like about the pencil, though, is that a pencil always comes, usually, with an eraser. And Elizabeth does not dwell on the terrible things that have happened to her. And to me, it reminded me of an eraser. You know, when you write something, and this is important for writers, with a pencil, you can erase it. And there's a trace there. And maybe if that's, in Elizabeth's light, a hurt. But it doesn't completely go away, but it doesn't have the power anymore. You can't see it as well. So I love pencils, and that is why that is in her hair. I think it's going to do for the number two pencil what uh, Michael Jordan did for Nike. <laughs> They're going to be selling out of number two pencils. Oh, I love that. Do you find it makes a difference what you write with and how you write? Well, 
I only can now write on a computer, so I say pencils, but I have a lot. But uh, yeah, I do think, you know, there's some sort of tactile problem with me, or I guess I shouldn't say it's a problem, but when I, I'm particular about a keyboard, and when I get accustomed to the one that I have, then I want to hang on to this computer for decades. My husband, who worked in technology for decades, would go, you must change your computer. It's old. It does, you know, but I like the keyboard. And I've even worn off all the letters. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But you just know where they all are. I know where they all are. <laughs> it's a bit like the eraser. There's probably the tiniest marking of where they used to be. I know. I know. I Somebody saw my keyboard one time that, you know, just, it's, they said, it's like a Braille computer or something. And I said, oh, no, I just wore off. Just, I just wore off all the letters. I mean, that is, that's how much you've been writing. Yeah. I mean, you want any proof. Yeah. There it exactly, is. Exactly. Um, although I spend a lot of time when I'm writing, Googling things on, uh, and looking things on YouTube. So I yeah. guess I'm still pressing the keys then. So someone <laughs> could look at my keyboard and go, well. Wow. <laughs> um, do you find that you need solitude to write? Can you kind of go into your office and write for like an hour or do you like a long time ahead of you? I need solitude. Mm. And I just write at the dining room table. We live in a fairly small flat, so I don't have, you know, a room of my own. And right now, of course, with COVID, after COVID, during COVID, my husband and I were both at home working three feet apart, which was that was close. But I read everything I do out loud. So poor man wore headphones like we're wearing every minute of the day so he could do his work. <laughs> He's very patient, but I do need to be alone and I need complete silence. I can't hear any music, nothing. When you were talking the words aloud, was it important to you that he didn't hear as well? Well, with those, the size of his headphones, I don't think he could have heard a plane crash outside. <laughs> um, I mean, he really, he got the biggest headphones I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't like anyone to hear what I'm doing because I'm constantly correcting. The character of the dog, mm -hmm. 630. I, so I don't really like dogs that much, mm -hmm. but I loved this dog. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Like there are a few dogs that make it past my, and 630 did. I think he's the first literary dog. To, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's really so wonderful. It, there's something very heartbreaking about his character I don't know why maybe because he can never speak yet he understands so much and he helps with an awful lot of things and he can really feel the emotions of the characters I know you've got a dog called 99 mm -hmm. so I'm just interested what's with the numerical names <laughs> they... well uh, 630 came before 99 and 630 came really specifically because of the way he enters the book 630 is the only character in the book who is based on someone, and he is based on my old dog, Friday. Friday knew a lot, and that was really the first time I, I fully understood that I was living with an animal that might be smarter than most of the people in the house. She just had a sensitivity to her that I had never seen before in an animal. She also understood a lot of words, and when we moved abroad to Germany— and I know this sounds weird. She learned German. I don't know if she learned it from the other dogs hanging out in the Alps, but she learned, you know, we could say things in German, and it was as if we'd said it in English, and she'd go, yeah, I got it. Wow. You know, yeah. 99, though, 99. 
She is named after a friend of mine who died, and we grew up calling each other 86 and 99, which were the names of these two characters on Get Smart, which was an old American TV show. So when my friend passed away and we adopted a dog, I said, you know, she reminds me of 99. And that's why, <laughs> that's why I have a dog called 99. Well, that's a lovely reason. Do you feel like with the connection that you have with 99 and that you had with Friday is to do with you and your family and the combination of your family and the dog rather than it just being that the dog is so astute? Yeah, I'm not really sure, to be honest. You know, I think that we tend to underestimate animals and how much they know and what they can do. And every so often there'll be a new report that says, oh, my gosh, did anyone know that whales can think, you know, or that they have this or that? About 10 years ago, we found out that trees talk to each other. And I just get a feeling that as we progress down this path of trying to understand what animals know, we'll find out that they've always been a lot smarter than we are. I mean, they're not destroying the earth. We're able to do that. But, you know, they probably wouldn't have chosen that path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't worry. We'll do that for you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's really why I wanted an animal to comment on humans. And I think, you know, in the book, 630 is more of an anthropologist. He's almost studying us and trying to figure out. It occurred to me as I was writing the book that people lie, but animals in general don't seem to lie. Yeah. Lying. So one of my questions is about lying, because I feel like for me, that's probably the biggest thing theme of the book in terms of, I don't know, a morality mm -hmm. thing jumping out at me. There's a lot of questions about lying. Mm -hmm. Mad, Elizabeth's daughter, asks lots of lots of questions about lying that really reminded me of the questions my own daughter asks. Yeah. And also it asks bigger questions, I suppose, in terms of lying and religion, mm -hmm. and whether it's okay to lie. Are you a good liar? <laughs> I think copywriters are pretty good liars. We often said, my friends and I, who are copywriters, would say, you know, we're just writing really short stories, really short stories. I think lying is something that helps us be polite to each other, too. So it has its good things and its bad things. But, you know, in the book, it is true that lying becomes uh, one of the themes, and it's a theme I want to explore in terms of religion, because Elizabeth obviously is not religious, but she was raised by very religious people. And she rejects that as a scientist. Most scientists, you know, aren't religious. And it's for a reason, because they believe in evidence. And lately, I kind of wish most of the world believed in evidence. So, yeah, that theme was very important to me. <laughs> well, it comes out really, really beautifully. Let's move on to your next item. Okay. This is something from your desk mm -hmm. and it's a fossil I believe. <laughs> it's a fossil. Yeah. Yeah, it's a piece of bone from a T-Rex. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. How did you get it? My husband got it for me for my birthday one year. I remember my kids had called and they said, "Oh, dad got you another weird gift for your birthday." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, oh great, because he and I are a little bit alike this way. We both love natural history museums. We both love dioramas." And he's not this way, but I actually love taxidermy. I don't like mounted heads or anything, but I love, you know, animals that have been preserved. And so I open up my gift and it's this, it's just, you know, probably four inches big, but I loved it. And he knew I would love it. I just went nuts. And so I keep it 
on our dining room table because I can look at it and remember that the T-Rex endured. And I think in writing, endurance is required. It is part of it. I talk to writers all the time who go, well, you know, I'm just about to give up. And I know that feeling. Of course, you want to give up all the time. But the truth is, if you want to get done, you just have to go through it. Rowing is endurance. Writing is endurance. I've got this T-Rex bone. Endurance. (laughs) It was the passing of time. The fact that one day, you can have a bad day and it it won't matter in the long running of things. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, When you were growing up, I know you've said you're, you've talked about your mother wanting to be a nurse and a doctor. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking a lot about her when you were writing Elizabeth? Yeah, my mom was a nurse and she had been a nurse, but she gave it up to stay at home with four children, four girls. And she always said, oh, no, you know, I love being a mother. But all she ever did was talk about nursing. And it was really clear that she missed it. And I did say to her one time, did you want to be a doctor? And she insisted that she hadn't been smart enough to be a doctor and women didn't become doctors. And, you know, that was good because women weren't smart enough to be doctors. And I I remember I was probably seven or eight and I thought, my mom is the smartest woman I know. I'm not buying this. And as we grew up and we left home, the minute we were all gone, she went right back to nursing. And, you know, it took a lot for her to do that. But because by that time she was in her 50s, she had to go get her license renewed. And she did it. And not only did she do it, but she became this amazing nurse. And I was so proud of her because she she was the only nurse who volunteered to work on an AIDS ward. That was when AIDS was raging, when, you know, it was first discovered. And she said, well, I'll do it. And she was just amazing at it. I just look back and I think, my neighborhood was stuffed with these women. And I know my own mother-in-law had been a concert pianist and was not able to do that for a career because she had to stay at home. There was some resentment there, and you could feel it in the neighborhood. You know, all the men are going off and doing cool things, and the women are staying at home and changing their 50th diaper and thinking, what about me? You know, I I think when I look back, I feel terrible because I don't think that I recognized my mom anything other than being a mom. And now you realize, oh, my God, she had to give up everything to take yeah. care of me. I know. Yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean. After my, my dad died 10 years ago, mm. and after that, I suddenly thought, mom met dad, <laughs> and they had two kids. And also mum thought she couldn't have kids when they met, you know, and then they did. And I suddenly just realised that life is a series of choices and that they weren't just. And I never really thought of dad as just dad because he went out to work. Right. uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay. uh, let's move to your next object, which is your good luck chart. Oh, yeah. So I mentioned I had a friend who died. She was my best friend. Believe it or not, we met when we were babies. And there's this great photograph that I'm having a horrible time locating. But she is in her father's arms, and she's probably six months old. And I was just a little older. I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten months old. My dad is throwing me in the water in a pool, and her dad is cradling her. But that was probably our very first meeting. And we were never without each other for 50 years. And it's strange because we both moved around a lot. 
but we did everything together. And I don't know, it was very hard to lose her. So when she passed away, her sister so graciously gave me her ID bracelet from when we met, when she was just a little tiny girl. And I was so jealous that she got to have an ID bracelet with, you know, her name on it and any allergies, none. But it was just the coolest thing. So, yeah, that is my good luck charm. It's another sign of, for me, of endurance. And also just to remember her. When I wrote this book, I would often think, well, I wonder if Helen would find this funny. But she was a really, she was just an amazing, amazing person. So, What did she do as a job? Oh, she was, um, she was in the medical sciences, and she was director of a clinic. But for a while, when we were both out of college, she was the rape nurse at San Francisco Hospital. And, wow, that took a lot of strength for her to cope with the amount of violence she saw in a day. And I had a lot of respect for the job she did. Yeah. Yeah. What a way to remember her, to have that. It's got to feel like the right object, hasn't it, when someone's passed away? It can't just be like, it has to be something that that really represents them to you. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's her identity. It's her her address and her phone number. And her father had passed away when she was, I think, gosh, she was only 11. And that was a really big deal. And I remember we just sort of, I just stayed by her side. You know, we didn't have to talk. We were huge readers. So all we would do is get together and read. And uh, every year for our birthdays, we gave each other the same present, two Nancy Drew books each. (laughs) And uh, when she turned 50, I went to her party, and she unwrapped two more Nancy Drew for me, and she just she just started crying, you know, and she said, oh, my God, you know, here we are again. But it was great. It was great. So I feel very lucky that her sister gave me that. And for me, it is a good luck charm. I don't – I try not to get too sad when I look back. I was devastated at first. And, in fact, I stopped swimming for two years because she drowned. That's how she died. And – I couldn't bear to get in the water and think about her. But now I realize it's, I celebrate her life. I'm proud of her. And I hope she would be proud of me. I think she would be. <laughs> I really do. Thank you. Do you generally believe in good luck charms? Are you superstitious in that way? I'm a little superstitious. I'm not at all religious, but I would say I'm superstitious. But I, yeah, I, I think that there's this idea that you can hold something that someone you loved once held. And there's still some little DNA on there or something. And I love that feeling that she's not that far. She's not that far away. Yeah. Yeah. I think that too. Um, Let's move to another object. Okay. I want to. (laughs) (laughs) So amazing hearing about her. And um, I think we should do a whole podcast on her. (laughs) Yeah, I do too, actually. She was fascinating. Yeah. So this is an object that you should really have thrown out. My first short story. I wrote it when I was five. And actually, my friend Helen read it. And I could just see in her eyes, she's like, oh, no. (laughs) And I remember reading it afterwards and going, well, there's no plot and the characters are really flat. I still have it, though. Yeah. You know, you, you want to feel like you've improved. Of course. There's <laughs> nothing better than looking at a story. That, I mean, you were young to write that, you know. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> it made no sense. <laughs> so the cover, 
the inside cover, I urge people to buy this book. And I know... Good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that goes without saying. I think it's, it, it's an amazing book. When you buy the hardback, and I know Waterstones are doing something even more incredible than this, but the mm-hmm. hardback I've got, it has the periodic table yes. on the inside yes. in these beautiful primary colours. And yeah. it's the best hardback I've ever seen. I love the jacket design as well. But mm-hmm. if you look inside, it's so, so beautiful. It's like a, an object you just want to gaze at, this periodic table. How much did you have to do with this design? Did you meet the person who designed it? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Becky Kelly is the designer of the cover. She did an incredible job. It's so great. They showed me the periodic table. I was so excited. And they were just about to send it to press. And then all of a sudden I went, oh, my God, those elements were not discovered back then. You've got to take out 117. One, you know, it's just all of these. And they, all, they were so nice. And the designers had to do it both in the United States, which has a different cover, and here they had to correct the periodic table for the time period. I love that because my friend Robin Ince, who writes science books, like he is so careful to fact check with mm-hmm. his science books. And he sort of says that's the most important thing to him, that everything's Absolutely. backed up. And although this is a novel, yeah. it does contain so much science. Yeah. And I love that attention to detail. It would have been so easy to let it go. But I can see why that would be so important to you because yeah. it, Elizabeth would care. She would care. She would care. And, you know, I had the book reviewed by two chemists. And that was really a relief because I'm not a chemist. I'm not a scientist. And I I did teach myself basic chemistry using a textbook from the 50s. And I did conduct science experiments in our kitchen. And the fire department was cold. <laughs> and the response time here is excellent. But I'm not a chemist, and I fully expected it to be full of errors. I tried very hard to keep it within this time frame. And I can't tell you how many times I tried to use a reaction as a metaphor and then discover one part of the reaction would not have been discovered by 1963. (laughs) And I had to throw it out. It was a reminder that science marches forward every day, and science changes all the time. It's what we need. We need to change. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll continue to change because I imagine, I hope that for the gender and racial elements mm-hmm. that you're talking about in, in science, basically it's just white men or it was then, yes. that there is more inclusivity now. Yes. But I imagine there's still a long way to oh, go. I talk with my friends who are scientists, women scientists, and they're still fighting this battle, this sexism battle. Um, And I suppose that there's some, you know, jealousy, competition, whatever. But we have so many problems to solve. It really does not make sense to keep people out of this. And so I really hope more girls will love, you know, dissecting frogs when they're young and then go into science, whatever science it is. I mean, I also hope they write books. But, yeah, that's what I really hope. We need everybody. We need all the minds on all of our problems, not just half. And as you say, it's so ironic that it's this world of science, which (laughs) should understand that. That it is so illogical that scientists themselves wouldn't say, okay, yeah, we know there's really no difference between these brains here. We know that women are capable. But that's where all the personalities come in. 
And that's where all the jealousies come in. And that's where us being human and competitive and on and on, these are our shortcomings. And that's why I need a 6.30 to comment on that. (laughs) And why do you think Elizabeth has already resonated with so many people? You know, publishers, it's been published in so many different territories and it's been adapted and and I'm sure it's going to do so well. It just is a book that reaches out to the reader with open arms. Why do you think it is that Elizabeth just jumps into people's hearts? I think because she has so many things that she has to face. And she faces them with a kind of rationality we don't see very much anymore. But she also is very courageous. She's flawed. She's not perfect. She can irritate some people and annoy other people. But she mostly inspires people because I think she just doesn't see the point in saying no or listening to people who say no to her. And she just decides what she wants to do. And I really think anybody who's had a bad day at work or has been you know, maligned or disbelieved or whatever, if they've missed their promotion, they're going to identify with Elizabeth Zott. And I've gotten a million reviews lately from men. And men are like, oh, my God, I love Elizabeth Zott. And I think I know why. Because you've had trouble at work, too. Or you've had trouble in your family, too. Yeah, I think that's quite important to say. It's not, it's, you're not saying only women experience no. these things, but you're saying this is a human thing. Yes, it's human. It's human. And, you know, I think men have always had this other problem that sometimes we don't acknowledge, which is Walter Pine's problem, which is that he has to fit into this bullying man world that maybe he doesn't belong in either. I also think she says what people want to say, and that's really inspirational. <laughs> I will say it is so much easier to, you know, you want to say something great in a meeting, have a great comeback, but it's a lot easier if you take a couple hours later to think of what you would have said. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of people going, what would Elizabeth not do? Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you. Oh, and, mutual. Oh, great. And hearing about how you wrote it is just fantastic. I feel like we've kind of unpicked it. And um, I really do recommend this book. I can't think of a single person who won't fall in love with her. I feel kind of bereft now that she's... she's. I, I carry her in my heart. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, we've got a special episode coming out in the next week or so where I'll be visiting Asma Khan at her restaurant Darjeeling Express to talk about the story behind her new recipe book. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Bonnie's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. Bye.